Welcome friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry, where we get to talk to people who are building a more humane world from the inside out. I'm Dick Dalton, your host, and today my guest is Carol Ray from Taylor, Texas. Are you on the line, Carol? I am indeed. <laughs> I knew that because we're Zooming. <laughs> howdy, y'all. Yes, howdy from Texas. Taylor, Texas. That's not too far from Austin? That's right, about 30 miles north of Austin in the farming country. Uh -huh. Beautiful area, although sometimes you don't have much water. We can have some periods of drought, but um, I grew up in West Texas, um, Odessa Midland area, and you know, it was 300 miles uh, to any kind of water at all. So there were no lakes or streams or rivers, and the water was um, very brackish. Mm. And uh, health warnings on the public water, you know, for anybody who had um, who was pregnant or had heart condition because it was so bad. Oh my. So, being in the Austin area with trees and water and rivers and lakes, it seems like heaven on earth. So <laughs> I don't miss slow death uh, even a little. So I was very glad to be away from that place, even though there's some great people there. Um, I, I really prefer more trees and water uh, to be around if possible. I think I heard you say slow death -a. Odessa, Texas, better known as Slow Dessa. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's called the armpit of the world, mostly because of the pollution that's there for the oil and gas industry. A lot of large refineries. Oh. Um, remember, um, as a teenager, when I was driving, I'd go out to get in my car and it'd be covered in soot, kind of black uh, carbon stuff from the plants. And um, I had a lot of asthma as a child because of the pollution. So it was, um, you know, we just said that's the smell of money when you walk out and you smell that um, mm. bracket kind of smell that goes along with the oil industry. Mm. Um, kind of get used to it and you kind of say, well, that's that's how we make our living. So that's how it is. In the early 80s, we had a centrifugal pump business. I was married at the time and living in Hobbs, New Mexico. And all of the big um, oil companies that uh, we were doing business for and we were doing some um, Oh, tertiary recovery with CO2 and some things like that. And uh, the uh, they would write us out 90, 120 days on our invoices where our vendors had to be paid at 30. And so it was it was really, really difficult um, in 82, um, 83 kind of time period. And a lot of the small companies went out of business then, saw, you know, fallout change. And, right, um, right. Well, you escaped Odessa <laughs> by um, following a young man. Is that, if I understand I it, right? man in a uniform, and uh, I was all of 16 years old when I met him, and I uh, only knew him 90 days when he proposed, and he had orders for Okinawa. I looked at it on the globe, and um, it was 10,000 miles away from slow death up and i decided uh anything would be better than where i was so um we got married and uh, i think i had a 500 hundred dollar budget for that little wedding 
Then he left the week after Christmas, and then uh, four weeks later, I left with my 66 pounds in a duffel bag and went to join him. And one of the most traumatic things for me about that was um, I was raised in Christian science, so I had never had a vaccination of any kind. And um, I thought in my piousness that I could say, hey, I have a a religious objection to vaccines. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. military said, well, isn't that nice? You just, you know, you have have two choices. You (laughs) roll up your sleeve and get your vaccinations and go to Okinawa or you stay home. So I rolled up my sleeve and got my vaccinations and went to Okinawa. So um, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, um, if that same model is going to hold for new things coming on. I think vaccinations is a really fascinating topic and Mm -hmm. one can divide some folks and unite others like so many other topics on, (laughs) on the plate today. Yes, we do have our controversial topics, and vaccination is certainly one of them. And in part because of the lack of transparency in so many of our industries, we don't always know what is involved in the proprietary recipe that uh, is, is being put in your arm, or whether it's being put in the paint, or whether it's being you know, put on your food to, to preserve it. It is a difficult thing for people to make decisions because uh, health is so valuable. And when you lose it, then you, what do you do? One of the worst whoopings my mama ever gave me with a a, a wooden spoon (laughs) was because I, um, I, broke camp and went down to to my friend's house two doors down and they had had a polio scare. This was, I was probably five or six years old. And um, of course my mom was coming from fear and I was just coming because my friend had a fudge sickle and I needed that fudge sickle and (laughs) and it it overrode any fear I had of getting in any trouble because I was just going to go see my friend. What what possible harm could happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, and I um, I had a really bad uh, kidney infection when I was about six, and they mistook it for uh, polio because I had a hundred and five and six tenths temperature, and because it uh, of the inflammation, uh, polynephritis, uh, my back was so tender I couldn't stand up. So um, I remember, you know, the fear in my, um, especially my dad, because he's the one that picked me up and you know took me to the doctor, and um, I ended up in the hospital with that and it created a whole lifetime of, um, you know, having to have way too many antibiotics my whole life because of um, having that weakness in my, in my kidneys. And, you know, you, you always wonder, um, had my mom not been Christian scientist and had she, you know, taken me to a doctor, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I wouldn't have had such a bad infection. However, <laughs> there's so other many things, you know, of the people who, have allergic reactions to medications and who have um, some fault through the medical staff that people succumb to hospital stays all the time. So, you know, it is what it is. It, it happened and I've been really struggling with it my entire life. And in fact, April of last year, I was given antibiotics because I had uh, skin cancer, squamous cell carcinoma, mm. and I had big, big slice down my face, a Mohs procedure, M-O-H, they call it, where they um, take the 
the cancer layer out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was much more involved than I thought. And so they gave me massive amounts of antibiotics before and after. And I, um, I tried for months to, you know, get off the antibiotics last year. And I had uh, urinary tract infections in April and May and June and July and August and September. And finally, October, my daughter's doctor said, you know, it's time to go back on daily antibiotics. And so I did that last October and it was only two weeks ago, actually 16 days ago, I finally have um, felt like my immune system strong enough that I um, was able to get off antibiotics on a daily basis. And um, part of that is um, a major change in my diet. My son had celiac disease and I've always been really conscientious of gluten. So gluten-free, um, I was some some kind of an expert <laughs> back in the 70s because I knew about it so much sooner than most people. But um, this new diet is in the Ayurvedic type of um, approach. And so many things were uh, a surprise to me. So I, I called for a consultation and um, my diet is sugar-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, and surprise of surprise, salad-free. And because I had a lot of uh, digestive issues, the um, idea is have steamed vegetables instead of raw vegetables. And I thought eating my probiotics and my yogurt every day was a good thing, but no, that's a dairy product. So no yogurt, um, very little meat. I put maybe a little bit of, of chicken, mostly for flavoring and, and something. And I'm eating a ton of mung beans. Oh, <laughs> mung beans. Mung beans, yes. Either M-U-N-G or M-O-O-N-G. Which, <laughs> um, I was really surprised at how nutritional they are and how, how much fiber that they have in them. And so I, I started out having them. I did a few days of having nothing but mung beans. And then I started having, you know, maybe my lunch and dinner. And then now I'm just kind of in a maintenance mode where I, I do mung beans about three days a week and um, have some, some form of mung just about every day. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I experiment with them all the time. But what's really amazing is um, I have psoriatic arthritis and my joints are probably 90% better than they were. So I can move my hands a lot easier and my knees are working better. And it's just amazing, you know, the, the difference that, um, you know, uh, a diet like that can, can make. Cause I, I tried some of the, the medications and they're super expensive, like 2,300 a month, um, for psoriatic arthritis. And, um, so, you know, uh, doing Ayurvedic, um, herbs it seems like uh, walk in the park comparatively they don't taste bad they're you know they're all um, natural plant-based so it's been really interesting I'm um, I found a, a lot of information in a little book you and I are familiar with the ancient secrets of a master healer mm-hmm. by dr. Clint G Rogers and yeah. um, he's been on the show here he, he was on the show back in uh, March uh, 11th uh, is where I first met uh, Clint before the book actually uh, came out. It was such an interesting conversation that we had that I just kept track of him and he started a Facebook group and then a Zoom group and that's where I met you. Was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Zooming. Yeah. Zooming, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I um, had a kind of an interesting uh, way that I fell into that and um, 
you know, it's, I'm going to use uh, quote Dr. Naram, believe it or not. <laughs> Dr. Naram, who's Dr. Naram? Dr. Naram is the um, ancient master that Dr. Clint's book is about. And he has given Dr. Clint kind of a roadmap to Siddhaveda and um, its ancient secrets. And Siddhaveda was um, 2,500 years old or so and came about from the physician to the Buddha. So um, the ancient scripts are still intact and um, it's really interesting. It's not a religion. It's, I love the, the idea of it's like electricity. You don't have to believe in electricity to turn the switch on. You don't have to understand electricity to turn the switch on. You just got to know that there's a switch to be turned on and that we have this innate ability to heal ourselves that we can turn on if we have the right information. So that's what I've been trying to do is to heal myself with, um, with diet and lifestyle. And then they have this really secret formula called Marma and uh, <laughs> A-R-M-A-A. And so I've been making that kind of my unofficial hobby is to learn more about um, the different Marmas. And it's so interesting that, you know, something as simple as finding a pressure point in your hand can release some pent up energy. It's very similar to acupuncture, acupressure. Mm. And um, I actually had um, a Chinese physician in the 70s show me some points on my hands that uh, could help with um, anxiety and, you know, some of that kind of stuff. And they're, it's, they're, the correlation is really similar and uh, pretty fascinating stuff when you pull it all together and apply that to your, your daily life, especially now because we have so many things that um, can stir up fear and anxiety. So I'm really grateful to have some additional tools to put in my tool belt for those kinds of emotions. I think some of our listeners probably are familiar with Donna Eden, who has worked in energy medicine and her, her husband, David, uh, forgetting his last name, wrote a book on energy medicine. She's done workshops all over the country and the world, and it's a, a little different form than what you're describing, but all of these modalities have connections, evidently. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're working with energy. They're working with the same kinds of things, and, and for you to talk about uh, marmas, which have been passed down generation after generation after generation, it's not a... a uh, new age thing it's a very old age thing that's been uh, made available to us now uh, in our time yeah marmas are like tapping or or uh, these uh, places you can press on your your hand your face your i think i only have advanced the hand arm and face I like the one that you um, press above your lip and under your nose, and then you use your other hand on the very back of your head and, and press that six times. And that helps with, um, you know, some fear and anxiety and, and to relax. It's also for somebody who has ADD or you know, it's, it's good for your brain and helps soothe. And then the one that kind of the um, companion to that is you, touch your fingers together and you put them over your scalp so that your palm is in the forehead and your, your fingers are laced from the back of your head to the front of your head with your index fingers and uh, middle fingers touching. And then you kind of squeeze your scalp. So that can help with headaches and it can also help, you know, with, with kind of centering, but 
I think those two are, are pretty easy. And mm -hmm. um, my daughter's uh, been ill for a long time and I, I massage ghee onto her temples. And that seems to be really soothing. And I do counterclockwise, printing clockwise. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned a new word, ghee. You evidently take butter. And it's unsalted butter. It can be just regular butter. It's oh. organic and unsalted butter. And then you um, melt it down and then uh, slow cook it for usually um, nine or 10 hours to separate it and pour it through some kind of a filter like cheesecloth or in a pinch, you could use um, a fairly strong paper towel mm -hmm. and strain off the, you know, the, the fatty particles so that you get the pure ghee. But I've been doing a tablespoon of ghee in the mornings, um, and I, I believe that it's really helped my joints and my skin mm -hmm. for my psoriasis and, um, and for my joint pain. And um, it's good for your um, digestion, and it's um, one of the things they recommend is uh, if you have uh, – a kapha headache, K-A-F-A, <laughs> I think is how I spelled it. Uh, I, uh, Ayurvedic has the, um, the three kind of doshas, and a kapha headache is one that's a sinus headache. And if you put ghee in your nostrils, that's um, supposed to help with um, the sinus kind of pressures and help with that. So I put ghee on my daughter's temples, and when she's having abdominal pain, I put it in her navel. And then if she's, she's been having some seizures and spasms and I'll um, massage her feet with the ghee because we have so many uh, nerve endings in our feet. And then I'll just put, you know, socks on it so that, uh, that it helps moisturize and that kind of thing. But um, it's a, it's a really interesting tool. Again, another thing for your tool belt, you know, to, to use the ghee. Um, it's not very expensive. You can buy it ready made on, I think the one I bought on Amazon, maybe from 10 to 12 dollars something like that and a lot of the stores um, carry you know organic ghee that you can buy ready-made or they recommend you know four or five pounds of unsalted butter to start your your ghee process i i take the leftover parts and put it on the dog's food for a little extra richness <laughs> boy do they like that no. well i'm right <laughs> great You've had quite a journey in your time from Odessa to Okinawa. And didn't you have some teaching kind of work to do in Okinawa? I was a music teacher and piano uh, specifically um, and had 12 students there, um, which was really wonderful because we were living on $3,000 a year. <laughs> a year? A year for the three of us. So I, I no longer fear poverty. I've lived through it. So um um, yeah, yeah, $50 a month uh, housing off base was all we could afford. Um, and uh, luckily, I had a cat that could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the shrews that were trying to take over our living quarters. But, um, um, yeah, so being able to teach music um, was really helpful. And um, I was able to rent a piano. And then um, somebody had um, orders to go back home and left a practice that I was able to, to pick up at ri uh, ripe old age of 18. Um, so it was, it was good. I didn't get my music certificate till much later. I was uh, certified as a music teacher for Yamaha Music School, and I taught that for about 10 years, I guess, and did um, some original composition through that and taught kids how to write their own music, which was great fun. And um, <laughs> interestingly enough, on the summer break, one of, uh, two of my students uh, had parents that had a radio station 
and uh, the dad said, hey, I need some summer help since you're not teaching this summer. How about you come help me at the radio station? So I, uh, I did that, and um, I created a, a little program for senior citizens in our little town in New Mexico, and it was great fun. And my son was six at the time, and um, we would take anyone who was having a birthday in our local nursing home, and um, we would... Uh, I had a deal with the bakery and they would bake a little six inch cake and I had a deal with the floors and they would do a little thing of flowers and I had a deal with the, it was a Luby's cafeteria. So my son and I would deliver it and sing happy birthday and what a treat that was. And we met so many interesting people and then I would do a little radio um, broadcast, you know, of the time. I had a, a guy that um, rode in a band um, in Mexico chasing Pancho Villa who was really interesting and um, had another guy who um, played the violin and he said, I know 3000 songs on the violin. Just pick a song, give me a song. But what was really interesting is they all sounded just alike, <laughs> <laughs> but in his mind, they were all different. Right. Beautiful. But, Beautiful. Yeah. It was really a lot of fun. And um, I, uh, I did some additional radio and actually uh, wrote a, <laughs> I wrote a radio show because I needed money really badly. And there wasn't much around in the, about 83 or so. And it was called everything you ever wanted to know about the oil field and were afraid to ask. So I uh, used my uh, background in Odessa and I made a little trek to Roswell, New Mexico and met with uh, someone in the petroleum technology program there. And I, um, I went to all the big guys and said, hey, I've got this radio show. Would you like to uh, do an interview and talk about um, seismic uh, exploration? And I had Schlumberger and Halliburton and... Um, Marathon oil came from Houston and um, it, it became a great success. And um, we even went out in the oil field and interviewed roughnecks um, from the drilling platform um, to say, you know, what does it mean to be a roughneck? What does it, you know, how, what does that, what does that really mean? And um, one of my favorites was uh, we had a pig and a poke when uh, in a pipeline, they have this device that rolls along so that it gets out any kind of debris and, they, they listen for it as they walk along and they call it the pig in the poke. And so we had somebody from Shell Pipeline talking about um, what that was like and um, pipelines. I didn't realize you could have three different viscosities of fluids in the same pipeline. And then uh, they separated them out at the gathering station. So it was really interesting and it, it was so popular. It started running twice a day and um, had people, you know, fly in, you know, um, the nearest airport was Odessa from, from Hobbs and then uh, they would run a car and come over and do our little show for our, for the old show. Uh, so yeah, that was lots of fun and learned a lot in the process and found a way to generate some revenue. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, before you got your degree? That was before I, I got my degree. At that time, I still just had a 10th grade education. Um, and then I um, went back to school for the music and, um, had a uh, enough for like an associates but I didn't get my bachelor's until 97 and I was working in Austin in technology and um, I uh, got a job that um, the condition of the job was that I finished my degree so um, they paid for it and um, I got my um, my bachelor's in 97 and then I got my master's in 2003 
um, and I also got a project management certification and I also had a master's level certification in negotiation and conflict resolution, which I found to be enormously helpful in so many areas of life. I, if, I, I think that's something everybody should, should take on because you use it every time you buy a house or a car or negotiate for a raise or to work at home or, you know, whatever those things are to, to uh, have a, a good approach for um, communicating what, what you want. And so much of life is about knowing what you want, right? That's what I hear. If it's not about what you want, it's about being able to listen to whatever guides you in your life. I think uh, some people, and I think I'm one of them, that operates more on listening to whether you call it inner guidance or from the the, the ethers uh, around us, and um, and I say yes or no, rather than I want to do this. I, I just don't remember in my life doing much of I want to do this. <laughs> so yeah, I think there's different ways to approach living, but uh, certainly I, I know the book. Uh, that we referenced to ancient secrets makes a, a really big deal about knowing what you want and how powerful that can be. And, and I understand in, in some people's circumstances, it, it must be really powerful. I have a little difficulty personally identifying with that. So, but that's okay. Hey, we don't have to be the same. No cookie cutters. <laughs> no cookie cutter. I thought I wanted to be an energy healer. I was going to school for that and I was going to get certified as an energy healer and I was going to work in you know, hospitals where they have no other options left. Medical science gives up on people. And so you can go in and um, offer, you know, a kind of energetic work and prayer to, to help people who have no other alternatives. Um, and I, I thought that was going to be my path, but it turns out that that wasn't my path. And um, so I, I did that for a while and I had some really great successes at it. And um, I felt like, I, you know, I had some, some gifts that uh, would be valuable, but I kept, uh, kept going in back into technology. It just kept falling in my lap and the doors would open and I'd just, you know, go through the door. And then um, I decided while I was, um, I was working on a, on a contract in um, Houston, Texas. And, uh, while I was there, I was taking classes uh, uh, in, to get a degree in naturopathy. And um, I had a, a PhD program in advance so that I would motivate myself. <laughs> and the classes were really, really got a lot out of them because they were on nutrition and nutrition and cancer and, you know, a lot of things on anatomy and things on um, energy healing in Ayurveda and Chinese and Native American Appalachian. So it was a really comprehensive uh, program, but the school went bankrupt after 37 years. <laughs> so I'd been in it about a year and a half and um, a little bit back on a class action lawsuit, you know, at the, at the end um, for having prepaid. But um, again, it seemed like that door is just kind of shutting, you know, and instead I kept just getting more opportunities to do more um, consulting in the energy industry. So I was still doing energy work, but it wasn't on people. It was on <laughs> midnight. <laughs> well, you went all over the world doing that, didn't you? Didn't you? I did. I had a, I had a consulting gig in, in Paris, and I had another one in um, Ireland, 
um, I, um, I got to go all over the U.S. I did a, a project for the city of Spokane, for the city of Houston, for, I had, I worked with about 10, 12 utilities in Massachusetts and several in New York, did some metering projects um, for upper state New York, like around Syracuse, Albany, all the way over to Buffalo, Rochester, and in between. So yeah, I met some awesome people, got to see parts of the country and you know, it was, I went to the New York State Fair and you would have sworn you were in Texas. There was just very little difference, you know, and the people were there and, and what was uh. in the state fair in upper state New York as, you know, as what we have in Texas. I think people in agriculture and farming are kind of the same, you know, from state to state. They're salt of the earth kind of people and, uh. you know, just uh, there to have a good time. I, I read a little, little bit about your time in Ireland. Um, it sounded fascinating that you were working with low-income folks and housing. And do you remember much about how that? Came? Oh yeah, it was, it was a really uh, great project. Um, that a uh, small community of four thousand um, really went about it in a, a brilliant way by doing uh, roofing and insulation and uh, doors and windows um, as a first pass to to look at energy conservation. And we had a little device called Kill a Watt, and uh, we would put that in homes and gather data so that we could see how much um, energy a refrigerator was using, for example. And then we would collect that data and see if we could get them a, a low or no interest loan to replace that old unit with um, a more energy efficient one. Mm. So um, it was it was really interesting. And then they, um, for heat, which was important in Ireland, they decided on um, a three-year willow crop. So from the time the trees grew to they were harvested, it was three years. So they put furnaces in um, the residential areas, and the pipes went underneath the streets and up into the houses and radiators. So it was kind of a, a localized system in order to bring heat to, the, to a new residential areas. One of the other things that I thought was really brilliant is they put a wind turbine at the junior college. And they let the students help with the installation. They let the students collect the data. They let the, the students really be engaged and involved with it so that they understood that part of the technology. They replaced all their street lights with um, a combination of a little wind turbine with a solar cell on it so that they had no cost for their street lights. And they invested in bicycles that you could share and electric cars that, that you could share. They had a really aggressive program for their commercial industries, and they had a Crown Point, a Crown Royal, Crown Point, I forget, Crown something, hotel, and um, they ended up going with geothermal for their heat source. So it was kind of a comprehensive thing from the biggest users to the smallest. And um, I was uh, privileged to have a program by the junior high kids on energy management, and they showed us graph charts that they did by collecting the data with the school first. Is it cheaper to leave a computer on 24 seven or is it better to shut it off at the end of the day and restart it? So they did all that analysis and determined, you know, what was best um, for energy conservation. And then they did some tests on different light bulbs. And um, they had these little charts that they gave away to people to show where, the, where you could conserve so even kids seventh, eighth grade were really involved and very knowledgeable and so conscientious about the use of energy. And um, 
you know, it was just, uh, it was, you know, we went and visited people in the poorest of the poor. And then we went, you know, to places, you know, where, where it was all commercialized and everybody was engaged and involved. And that's really what made it so successful. And there are several universities that were also providing um, research and analytics um, and, you know, students to help them um, with manning of the data. Do you remember what town that was in Ireland? Dundalk. How do you spell that? D-U-N-D-A-L-K, I believe, Dundalk. I'm going to look that up. Uh, we've been yeah. over there once. Uh, wife has been over there twice. Um, and we have friends that do tours, lead tours over there. And it sounds like a, it would be a fascinating little town to visit and see how they're doing. Yeah, it was really um, a great group. And then they, they came and spoke at a conference that, that um, I was help hosting in Houston. And uh, it just happened to be my birthday. And the guys from Ireland uh, took me out to play a round of golf on my birthday. And then we uh, we, we might have had a beer at the pub afterwards. I can't remember <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, can't remember, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, they were, you know, they they certainly returned the hospitality when I went to Ireland, you know, for um, our Texas hospitality. And um, it was wonderful. I loved the food. I loved the people. They were, they just seem, you know, so um, joyful and you know, dancing and singing. And, you know, I really enjoyed Ireland for me personally, more than France um, being in Paris. And I, I was um, kind of wined and dined by some of the vendors at some really expensive French restaurants. And I'll take a Irish stew any day <laughs> over, <laughs> over some of the more exotic French cooking. I, I guess I'm just a country girl at heart. Country girl. Odessa, Texas. Wow. Yeah. My summers were in Autry, Oklahoma with my grandparents. And oh. that's really where I fell in love with, uh, with, um, you know, farming and, um, my grandfather had horses and cattle, and I had an Appaloosa named after me, Miss Kay, and my middle name is Kay, and you could go out the back and whistle and come right down out of the stall, and sometimes I would ride bareback into the post office to get the mail, and it was just a idyllic um, situation there, and my great aunt had a huge garden, and we'd go up and pick fresh vegetables, and then sit on the porch at night and shell peas, and you know, uh, things like that. And we, uh, my great grandparents lived across the street from my grandparents and, um, they would come over in the mornings and about 10 o'clock after all the horses and cows and chickens and everything had been taken care of, we'd have a big brunch or, you know, with uh, biscuits and gravy and pork chops and, <laughs> um, all that country cooking. And cause we'd already been up working for four or five hours, you know, by that yeah. time. Yeah. Well, some summers, uh, it looked like you went to the Philippines for some reason. I did. I, um, I was doing really well with my consulting career and, um, <laughs> I, uh, I was, it was suggested to me by someone I worked with that I needed to go get a facelift. And, um, so I, um, I, I went and made myself an appointment just to see what it might be like and how much it might cost. And, turned out that the, the plastic surgeon she referred me to was the same one that did my son's plastic surgery in the Austin area many, many years before, which was really interesting, but it was going to be a lot of money, thousands of dollars. So I decided to take those thousands of dollars and invest them in children at an orphanage instead of wrinkles on my face. <laughs> oh my goodness. 
Yep. And uh, it, I'm so glad that I did because, you know, I thought I was the one giving. I took 200 pounds of educational materials, medical supplies, vitamins, nutrients, all kinds of stuff. But I came home with so much more, so, so much more, because those kids were so loving, um, so giving, so nurturing. And it was um, an orphanage that's about three and a half hours south of Manila. And most of the kids there um, were state-supported, rescued from sex trade, not very adoptable in a lot of cases. Um, but boy, did they know how to love and they know how to, you know, um, how to win your heart. Um, and they had great music programs there. So I taught music. I taught art. Um, I uh, taught English. They taught me Tagalog. Um, and um, so it, it was just really um, an awesome time to give and, and receive. And um, it was just, uh, I'm so glad I did it. And I went back the next year too. Um, so I took three weeks um, for my vacation and, and spent those on the Philippines. And um, um, like I said, I, I thought I was the one that was giving. Mm -hmm. Turns out I, I was the one who was bringing home a full heart um, from the, the great uh, compassion for the Philippine people and especially the love of the children. So you had children of your own at the time. I was, my kids were grown then. Yeah. Ah, yeah. they were already grown. Okay. So this is, mm -hmm. uh, Let's see, 2010, 2011. Oh, okay. Somewhere in there. Yeah, I didn't have the time frame for when yeah. I was in place. And I came back and I jumped right into theater. <laughs> well, I, that was my next question was, uh, how did you get into uh, theater since we have that in common? We do have that in common. <laughs> I started out um, with the radio station gig that I had in New Mexico. I was doing some some fundraising for them and um, ended up in a cast in a play and it was really great. And at the time I was still really struggling with my self-esteem and luckily I got cast as a character who had very strong self-esteem, was a foot stomper, a finger shaker. Cool. <laughs> it was, uh, the character's name is Chick the Stick from a Tony Award winning play called crimes of the heart yeah, and um, mm -hmm. yeah it was a really great play and i learned that if i put that character on and i went into the grocery store and somebody ran into me with their cart instead of me saying oh i'm so sorry excuse me i didn't mean to be in the way i'd shake my finger and say hey you better watch where you're going you just ran over me in my best mississippi accent <laughs> So I, I learned that uh, that character could come in really handy if I needed somebody a little more forceful, you know, and then. Um, Let me interrupt you just a second, because I got to play Jose in Lilies of the Field. And Jose was just a mild mannered uh, coffee shop uh, manager, owner. But I found that when I went back to my classroom, Occasionally, Jose would take over my class when something needed to be said with a whole different attitude than what I normally project. And Jose could really, uh, <laughs> he could really call a spade a spade in a way that I would never have done. <laughs> Sometimes even in one-on-one in, uh, -on -one sessions in my office, 
not planning at all. And Jose would come up and just talk to that student with a, you know, like, this is what you need to hear. I know how that feels. It's just amazing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the the, um, the next uh, role I got was a really big role for me. Uh, no idea that I could ever pull this one off. It was in Midland, Texas, and the community theater there was in the top ten in the nation. And they, um, my boss said, hey, they're casting for um, uh, The Elephant Man, and I really think you should go for tryouts. And he said, I'll work with you, you know, with your schedule at work. Make sure, you know, you have time off to do what you need to do if you, you know, if you get cast in that. There are over 200 women reading for Mrs. Kendall. I was, I was like, I looked around and I thought, there's just no way, no way. And um, I was really surprised to find myself asked to come back the next day with, you know, it's down to 20. And then, you know, that afternoon, Sunday afternoon, came back to 10 of us. And so she hands us the scripts and she said, okay, um, flip open to page and I'm, I'm reading the script and it says, and Mrs. Kendall takes off her camisole and show the elephant man her breasts. And I'm like, excuse me, I have a question. <laughs> About the wardrobe. <laughs> oh my goodness. I was like, what have I got myself into? This is, I'm so modest. I, I wear a, a towel from the shower, you know, to the closet in case God's watching. <laughs> this is not good for this is not going to work. But um, I was very surprised. I got the part of Mrs. Kendall. I had six weeks of addiction coach. I could say, I'm so very pleased to make your acquaintance in my very good British accent. And my, my wardrobe was entered in national competition and, and won all kinds of awards. Opening night, we had um, a curio from England that were personal effects of John Merrick, who was the elephant man. And some of the things that he had made and um, it was a formal event I had flowers I had candles I had balloons I had people giving me autographed books I I was the leading lady and it, I, I was not prepared for what a to-do it was and um, they wanted opening night to be so special that um, I had museums um, around my neck I had um, a ruby necklace and earrings that were from a museum collection and guards on each side of the stage watching me when they came off. And um, it was really, really amazing. I had uh, three people that just dressed me. And um, what made that particular role so exciting was um, I got to write some of the original music for the play, um, the, the Death Lullaby, I got to write that. And there was a piece that we did. Um, I got to play the pinhead in the um, circus with the elephant man, so a cone head, with Union Jackson, a tutu, and kind of clown makeup. So um, doing both characters was really interesting. And um, one, um, one night uh, we did, you know, full, full house every night. And um, I think it was probably the third weekend, I was backstage dressed as a pinhead and the stage manager said, you have an emergency call on the backstage phone. And I thought, what on earth? And I uh, kind of slid in my ballet slippers with my Union Jacks on, you know, and um, said, this is Carol Ray. And they said, um, your daughter's been in a car accident and we need permission to treat. And um, I was just a nervous wreck. She, she, they said she had a concussion. They thought her leg might be broken and, you know, pretty serious injuries. And I said, what's the happening in the next half hour? And they said, well, nothing's going to happen. We're waiting on x-rays. There'll be, you know, it, nothing's going to happen, you know, for almost an hour. 
So I pulled all my courage together. I sang the most convincing death lullaby you have ever heard. Oh. <laughs> Tears streaming down my face. And then I had somebody waiting off stage, you know, to whisk me off to the hospital in my Union Jacks, of course. <laughs> quite the scene at the hospital but you know it is what it is you just do what you got to do but yeah. yeah that was uh that was exciting well i'm gonna look up that play again i i've oh, seen the elephant man great once. play the yeah. special on really wonderful too and then i i didn't do any more theater till um 2012 and i was doing some improv i did improv in new mexico i did some improv uh, classes in houston and um, they had canceled one night. And so uh, I was like, what else could I go get into? And they were uh, casting for Cinderella, the musical in Houston. And I landed the part of the stepmother. And um, oh my gosh, what fun that was. And I'm not a good singer, but it was okay because I'm a wicked stepmother. And it's okay if I can't, you know, can't carry a tune. So that, that was really great fun. And then um, as we were just about to wrap up, I had a director call and he said, hey, I'm casting for happy days and you're in it. And I'm like, but, but, but what, you know? And he said, yeah, we, we're going to have a professional dance troupe and choreographers and it's going to be so much fun. And so I got to do the tango with the bonds and I did my first ever tap dance on stage. And, um, I had such fun. Oh my gosh. I had such, such a great time. Um, in Houston theater, it was just met such nice people. And, um, it was, just, I just think, Community theater is one of the best things that you can do. And I was backstage with my sewing machine, uh, making <laughs> making props. And I made um, the men's fraternity, like kind of like the Masonic League, but I think they were called the Leopards or something. And so I took leopard skin and uh, added it to uh, a vampire cape, put um, uh, the leopard skin on a fez to make the hats, and um, did all kinds of costuming and uh, props. So um, it, was, it was just great fun. And I think anybody that can should do community theater. If you can't get on stage, be backstage, you know, managing props. And um, it's just to me that one of the most rewarding volunteer things that you can do. Well, we just had a, a very short run because it was intended that way of uh, Cats the Musical down in Jeff City. And it was set up nicely because we had about 20 or more youth from I think probably maybe five years old all the way up to 18 doing they were all dressed in their cat outfits and they did all the dancing and and movements and uh, characters except for uh, a few and then there was about uh, eight of us that were doing the songs doing the singing part and uh, a few of us actually had got to go on stage and sing one of the characters. And I got to be Gus, the theater cat. And I tell you, I've been in a lot of community theater plays. It's rare when you feel as though a character has actually inhabited you from another realm. <laughs> and if you know cats, the other realm is the heavy side layer. It, it just felt like Gus came in. I had created a, uh, a little hat that actually I wore in the very first community theater I was ever in and uh, put little ears on it and had an old jacket and, and made a self, myself a tail uh, that matched. And 
use a little cane. And the feedback was no dry eyes in the house. He oh, would, wow. He, and, and I came close to tears each night just being Gus. So uh, the thrill of community theater can be very deep. And uh, I, I'm just so grateful that I've, as you have had those experiences and uh, we can call on, on them in memories, but also they, they come back now and then to uh, help us out <laughs> at different times, whether we're in the grocery right. store or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you've mentioned, is it your, your daughter that was in an accident? She was in yeah uh, that particular uh, when I was in the theater yeah she was yeah. in that car she had no insurance no driver's license and thought it was a good idea to drive her friend's car to Waterburger so <laughs> oh my so mm -hmm. who are you caring for now that you say it's that same daughter yeah oh it's the same daughter okay all right same and, daughter mm -hmm. yeah she has a, a neurological disorder called stiff person syndrome. There's about 350 people in the United States that have it, 82 veterans, and she's a Navy vet. Um, and um, there's no cure. They don't really know what causes it. It's, um, it's part of the hippocampus, the fight, flight. There's also freeze and faint. And in this disease, when you have a, a stimulus, her muscles lock up and get tighter and tighter and tighter till they can break bones, rip muscle from the bones. And um, it looks very much like a tetanus type of seizure. Mm. And um, in years gone, gone by, um, you know, 100 years ago, people would be burned at the stake or drowned because they would, they look possessed. Um, the hands are clawed, the feet turn in, the back is arched, the jaw is open. Um, while they're in these full-blown seizures mm -hmm. and um, unlike epilepsy they're fully conscious and in horrific pain and suffering and um, yeah I, um, I rented an RV in uh, 2018 and drove her to uh, Johns Hopkins to the only specialist in the US and he spent three hours with her it was um, couldn't have asked for more attention than what he gave her but um, there's really there's just very little they can do besides try to manage the pain and she she decided to go the hospice route about two years ago after doing chemo and IVIG which is a, a plasma replacement forty thousand dollars a bag and the, the chemo was fifteen thousand dollars per injection and she was getting those every other week plus the time you know that they charge for the oncology stuff so about two hundred fifty thousand a month in treatment that insurance was covering for about two years, and then she decided, I'm done. No more, no more treatment. No more headaches. No more nausea. No more pincushion. I'm done. You know, with the with the treatment. So now she's in palliative care. She's had three seizures today. She went three days of not eating. She had less than 300 calories yesterday for the whole day, but um, but today she's had a good day. She's been able to eat today, and um, she's um. She's a fighter, and she's uh, she's she's taking some Reiki treatments, and she's studying Reiki. She'd like to if she can overcome this. She'd like to to do treatments for people with stiff persons because um, she's found it helps. You know, back to that energy kind yeah. of a thing. So yeah. How old is she? I've had I've had to work on 
I'm sorry. How old is she? She's 50. Wow. Uh-huh. And when did she have her first symptoms or first seizure? She was, um, it's been six years ago. She was in uh, advanced math class. She was uh, certified as an interpreter for the deaf and teaching algebra, or not teaching, but interpreting algebra at junior college in Austin uh, for the deaf. And then she was going to take some advanced math classes. And she kind of checked out and the professor said, are, are you okay? You don't look okay. And then she, you know, had this, this full bone seizure. Took quite a while to figure out what it was exactly. But, you know, I've, I've really had to work on fear. Um, you know, fear of your child dying is, is a very difficult thing, you know. And with COVID, um, she's been in the hospital twice in the ER three times in the last uh, two months. And it's a, a very different thing. You know, I've been her advocate for years. I've been the one, you know, to say, you know, she, she needs this, she needs that. She's taking this, she's taking that. We did this, we did that. I can't go in anymore. Um, every once in a while, they'll call me on my cell phone, you know, to keep me posted. But it's a whole different story now. It's difficult for her to go without an advocate, without someone who can speak for her. Because when the muscles in her throat are locked up, she can't speak for herself. Luckily, the hospital she goes to has seen her so much. They're very aware of who she is. So I've just recently, um, and, and partially with some of the conversations you and I have had, have... Um, started looking at, at fear. And, um, I think I, I had, um, erroneously thought of it as an emotion. And, um, instead of become aware of the spirit of fear and that we are not intended to live in the spirit of fear. And, um, instead we're intended to be in the spirit of power, the spirit of love, the spirit of, of self-control of sound mind. Um, but when you live in the spirit of fear, you're giving into all kinds of negativity that affect your health and your well-being and your ability to help others. And certainly I can't help her energetically if I'm coming from spirit of fear. So um, you had asked me, what could I replace that fear with? And um, I've, I've replaced it with optimism. And, you know, when I'm coming over thinking, I wonder, you know, I used to like... I wonder if she'll be alive this morning, you know? And so now I think, uh, I wonder if she's going to want um, a, a chocolate energy drink or if she's going to want, you know, um, something different, you know, for, for breakfast. So I'm going with anticipation and um, I wonder if we'll be able to make some crafts today. I, you know, so I've really been focused on as a caregiver to um, examine that and, you know, to, to, to live in the spirit of love and to not abide the spirit of fear. So thank you for your help and the support in that. Mm. That's such a beautiful statement that you're making, though, that, uh, that we can approach things in constructive ways because fear really is a destructive approach, both for us internally as well as uh, everybody around us. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's that's beautiful. Carol Ray, Taylor, Texas. What are you What are you doing these days uh, besides uh, mung soup and taking care of your daughter? You have other work, or are you uh, keeping busy with? I'm volunteering for um, the Manifestation of Miracles and the um, and Dr. Clint G. Rogers uh, group. 
the mentoring group, I'm really active, active in that, and also the speaker and writers group. So that takes, um, there's times when it takes, you know, 30, 40 hours a week when we're really gearing up and several hundred people are contacting me about, you know, uh, signing up for different things. And um, I've really enjoyed it, the, the camaraderie, the uh, meeting people all over the world to um to talk to somebody in qatar to talk to somebody who's you know sitting in rome you know to um to piece together people's stories and say hey there's somebody else that you need to meet that's also discovering their native american roots you know and so i'm doing some native american genealogy for someone in the group and then there's a second person that i brought in to to see what that looks like so i do a, a lot of um genealogy random acts of kindness and um, I've done a lot of DNA analysis because of my daughter's illness. So those, those are the things that really bring me joy. Um, and I'm, I'm trying kind of a social media fest and the universe helped me out. Um, our broadband company had a three-day outage. So no internet, no TV for the past three days. I just got turned on this afternoon. And it's like withdrawal, you know, like, oh my gosh, I can't even check my, you know, can't do this, can't do that. So. Yeah. So this was good timing for the for this. Well, wonderful. Last week we had uh, Arati Malvale Maj in, from Germany that's uh, in part of this ancient secrets uh, work and she was telling about a number of miracles that had happened through her life. And uh, so I'm really enjoying getting to meet you fascinating people as well. <laughs> <laughs> and getting to introduce you to folks here on the radio. So uh, thank you so very much. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm very grateful. And it's um, it's always a pleasure. And, and um, I enjoy reading your book. I think it's just wonderful. I hope everybody has a chance to read it. And um, again, just your your emotional support um, for me as um, the journey that I'm on. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So thank you. It's a, a great pleasure to be uh, your friend. So thank you so much. And I'll uh, say to the folks out there listening in, in Radio Land, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Uh, please uh, leave your world as you move around uh, cleaner, uh, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.